The Bob Murphy Show, Episode 70. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show in this one it's going to be a bit of a potpourri. For those of you who follow my blog, you know that when I have a bunch of random things to throw at you, I just put it in a potpourri post. So that's what I'm doing here. Various things I've been keeping notes on and I had some things to offer and I somehow convinced myself that, oh no, in order for me to talk about AOC and that crazy lady who started yelling at her, talking about eat the babies, it's necessary for me to devote at least 30 minute commentary to it and I realized, no, it isn't. I can just cover a bunch of topics. So that's what we're going to do in this one. Bit of a potpourri. So why don't we kick things off here? I'm going to tell a story. Now I'm going to break it down just to tell a little story. Straight up the podcast from the economist category. There, there you go. A little throwback for you. So the story involves me getting change at the register. And I guess I'm one of the few people on earth who still likes to pay in cash if possible and so there's lots of little stories involving me and the interactions I have with people who are younger than I am giving me change at the register. And apparently I talk about this a lot. Uh, recently, a guy on Facebook uh, said to me something like, do you notice, Bob, that all of your Facebook stories involve you getting change at the register? And I thought that was sort of like someone you know, asking Bill Bird, do you realize a lot of your routines involve people laughing? I mean, I just, I don't see why. More people don't have stories like this, but in any event, uh, this one, what happened is, well, let me let me back up a little bit. So first of all, just to give some context here, it's going to sound like I'm a cranky old man complaining about the young generation, and, and I get that, and I know how cliche that is. Also, I know that when you're younger, you're just so terrified of making a mistake, and especially when you're nervous, your arithmetical skills might fail you. So, for example, I was once testifying before a congressional committee on oil prices or something, and the guy, and it was a friendly guy asking me the questions too. It was like somebody you know who was pro having the government sell more permits or something for for drilling. So this wasn't someone trying to catch me in a mistake, and uh, and I could just tell from the line of his questioning it was possible I was going to have to multiply two numbers together, and they weren't very hard. It was like you know. 70% of something. So it was something like that. And uh, and I just decided, you know, as you're sitting there and the cameras are rolling, this is going to be on C-SPAN or something. And I just decided then and there in my head that if he asks me to multiply those numbers, I am absolutely not going to do it. And I came up with a joke. Like, I'm going to say something like, no, 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 I don't do math in front of the cameras or something like that and move on. And you know, I could just tell from his body language and the way it was going, he wouldn't have pressed me, right? He just would have laughed and we would have kept going. And it, it didn't come to that. Fortunately, he didn't ask me to multiply. But my point is, I knew there's a chance I'm going to freeze up because there's so much pressure here and because it should be so easy. And because if I multiply the numbers wrong, then I'm going to be forever on camera at a congressional committee multiplying numbers wrong and I'm going to look like an idiot. And so I just didn't want to go down that path. Right. Whereas just if you grab me right now and, you know, and ask me to multiply those two numbers together, it would have been simple. Okay, so again, I'm I'm just saying all this that it's going to sound like when I tell the story that I'm criticizing these kids, and I I understand that w the way they operated in these anecdotes may not reflect the full potential that they have. Uh, let me let me tell you another story just to show I, I get it I get it I'm a man of the people I have compassion. When I was younger, working in a grocery store, I got taken once. I was at the I was working the cash register. And this is dumb because they put up signs saying new cashier in training, which, of course, they're doing so that the customers have more patience with you. But on the other hand, like this person who ripped me off, 
I think that was obviously like a bullseye. You know, they just knew, zoom, they zoomed right in on me. So what happened is they gave me a book, a booklet of food stamps that had on the cover $50. And so what you were supposed to do, I don't know if this is how it still works, but this is, you know, back when I was working at the grocery store in New York State, the way it worked there is, you know, they had the booklet of food stamps and you would open it up and you would tear them out. But I didn't know that because, you know, I was a cashier in training. They had just told me theoretically about what a food stamp thing was. I had never actually seen one. I don't think during my training they showed me one. So this was live. I'm with a real customer who's buying food with a, with a booklet of food stamps. And he just gives me, I think it was a he, I don't remember, gives me the booklet that says $50 printed on top. So I typed into the register $50 of food stamps, you know, and the 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 bill was more than that. And so then the person gave me some cash to supplement and boom, he left. And then later the, uh, you know, the manager of the store, somebody comes over and, and a, a bunch of us and this, that whole cohort of people getting trained to work the registers, we all, our drawers were all short. I don't know what the mistakes the other people made were, but for me, they were like, yeah, your drawer is short $43 in food stamps or something. I'm making that number up. And so what had happened, of course, is the guy had already spent $43 or whatever number I said worth of food stamps, you know, tearing them out of the booklet and then thought, let me just see if I can get by this and, you know, gave it to me and to see if I knew to open the thing up and tear them out individually and type in, oh, there's a five and there's two ones and that's $7 off your bill. Instead, I just stupidly typed in 50 thinking, oh, this thing stands for $50 of food stamp. All right. So there's that example. And then another one, uh, again, just to show and I'm partly telling this in case there's younger people listening and you have to just realize the fear you have and, oh my gosh, people are looking at me and, oh, do I have a zit? And, oh, oh, oh my God, I'm stupid. Oh, 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 I don't know what's cool or not. I mean, it, it's really shocking how much you're worried about that stuff. And as you get older, you just stop caring, right? So it's more of a gradual thing. And let me be clear, it's not because you realize you're so much more competent than you used to be. And that's part of it, right? Like why you you care less about what other people think of you, that you, you get more secure in your own abilities and stuff. So that's part. But for me, at least, the main thing was I realized just how full of crap everybody else was, right? So when you're looking around at everyone seeming real confident and you know that you're not that confident, and so you think, oh, geez, these people must all have it together. And, I don't, and it's because they're bluffing. That, that's really what it is. Everyone's walking around with a pair of eights and they're acting like they got a full house, all right? So don't. Don't worry so much. Again, it, when you're insecure, knowing all of your flaws, you're right. You you are screwed up. <laughs> but my point is, so is everybody else. And they're just acting like they're not. So there you go. There's tips from Uncle Bob. So anyway, the other example, again, the, the point of this, in case you're getting lost, folks, is I'm just, I don't want to come off like, these kids these days, why in my time? I, I get that that's how it's going to sound. So I'm trying to diffuse that reaction. So I was in the grocery store and we had, so I worked in the dairy department and we had a bunch of cardboard boxes, right? Like the, the juice, well, everything basically came in in these cardboard boxes, like to, being shipped from the, I guess the wholesaler you'd call or the manufacturer. All right. And so then we would get them, we'd open up the box. We had these little, uh, you know, box cutters and you'd rip them open, cut them open, and then you'd break down the boxes so they'd all be flat and you'd fill up like a, a shopping cart with these things. And then at some point when your shopping cart was overflowing with these boxes that were broken down, you know, it was like a solid cube almost of boxes of cardboard. We would take it back because we'd recycle it. Because, you know, that not, not even because the government forced us to, because it made sense in that setting because we had so much cardboard flowing through our possession that we would sell it to somebody who would, would pay us for it because they'd recycle it. So there was this humongous machine in the back room that would crush the cardboard, right? It was just this, but it was kind of like a, you know, if there were an Incredible Hulk episode, it's something that the bad guys at some point would, about around, you know, 43 minutes into the episode would throw David Banner in there and uh, would soon forth come. So anyway, um, I'm loading the thing and there was a guy, how'd this work? Yeah, so I was in line. So, so you'd, you'd be in line, right? Like there'd be guys from other departments. So like the grocery department was one that was often using the thing when we were, because they, of course, went through a bunch of boxes too. You know, they get big things of Cheerios or whatever, and then I have to break down the boxes and come back. So I'm in line. You know, the guy in front of me leaves. I push my shopping cart up. And I'm trying to think. I, probably actually this in this story, I maybe I had um, like a bigger, like a, 
I forget what we call them. Like a, like dolly is not the right word, but like if you've ever seen in a grocery store, someone who's just got a huge uh, thing on wheels to like carry all the product out to like the floor, like to stock the shelf somewhere. And then they roll it back. I think maybe I had one of those because the point is I had just a bunch of stuff in in some of the boxes I still needed to break down. It wasn't just like I had a shopping cart full of broken down boxes. So I think what would happen, you'd like, you know, take the yogurt and put it on and then put the the box, pile it up. And then I rolled that whole thing back. And so I was going to be sitting there for a minute, breaking down the boxes while I'm throwing them into the, into the compactor. And so there was a guy behind me. He was waiting to use it too. And, and he was an adult. I mean, he's probably like in his forties or something. And I'm, I'm just a teenager doing this stuff, working on like a summer job or something. And somehow I got it into my head that this guy was really mad at me because I was taking so long. Like I, Oh, I should have broken down the boxes first before I got back there. And that was really rude of me. And Oh man, this guy is just sitting there fuming about this stupid kid. Like that's what's going through my head. And so he came, you know, so instead of him just sitting there waiting for me to unload all my stuff so I can get out of the way so he can use the compactor, he, you know, leaves his grocery cart or whatever he had with his boxes in it. And he comes up to help me. Right. So he starts grabbing my stuff and throwing it in the thing too to expedite the process. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh man, this guy, he's, he's so upset with me. He's, he's so annoyed that I'm taking so long that he's actually got to come and help me do it. Cause I'm just taking too long. Like that's what I'm thinking. And so when we're finally done, I, I just, I just want to show him that, oh no, no, I, I realized how out of line I was and how much of your time I was wasting. And so I just like, I want to show him, look at how fast I'm going to get out of your way. And so I just, you know, turn my, now that I'm remembering this, the, this, what happened, I think I was just pushing a shopping cart, which is all the more surprising because that means the most I could have been in this guy's way was like, you know, 25 seconds or something. But I think that must've been what it is that maybe as I was picking the things up, he came to help also. Cause it, if you, if you think about it inside the shopping cart piled up, if you just had, row after row of broken down cardboard boxes that was way too heavy you couldn't just lift it all up at once you would have to do it you know like three trips at least okay so now that i'm sitting here telling you guys the story i think it must have just been that he came to help just grab some of it and i must have been my mind must have been racing and i must have been that insecure or whatever even though i was there for like i said under a minute i would think but in any event I was so anxious to show him. Oh, no, no, I realized I was holding you up. I didn't say a word to him. He just, you know, so he comes up, helps me unload my thing, and I don't say anything to him. Don't even make eye contact and just turn my cart around and take off, like to go back to the dairy department. And he like kind of says, as I'm wearing away, like, you're welcome. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? So it was, so I acted very rude in that situation because this guy is helping me unload my thing. And I should, you know, any normal person, if I was an adult and I have, I'd be, Hey, thanks a lot. Maybe I would have stayed and helped him unload his stuff. And Hey, what's your name? Oh yeah. I work in the dairy department. Hey, you know, Oh, these managers, am I right? Am I right? Oh, you know, talk about they're cutting down the overtime, huh? Whatever. <laughs> so that's the, uh, you see the sporting event last night. Wow. That was a good one, but I didn't do any of that. Instead, I, I literally said not a word to him and, and turned around and took off in my mind being very, you know, like, like salvaging the situation to be as courteous as possible when no, because I was irrationally thinking I was doing something horribly rude that ended up making me be horribly rude. Right. So anyway, there's lots of stories like that from my childhood, which I'll maybe uh, dribble out to you guys as the podcast ensues. But in any event, I'm saying I, I get that. So the stories of these kids I'm telling now about how I interacted with them, you know, maybe there's things like that going on. But in any event, one of the ones was I was at a Starbucks recently and I go in and I'm getting a coffee for myself. My son wanted a banana. So I order the coffee and I, the banana and it, uh, the, you know, the price comes up and I pay the guy and he's, he's looking at the, oh, oh, by the way, with all these stories, I pay in cash. So that's that's the crucial thing here. And so that's where the, what's driving this. And I realize I'm one of the few people left on earth who does that. Why do I do it? Uh, partly, I just don't like the idea that there's this electronic record of everything I buy during the day, which happens if you're just using your, your cards. And also, I feel like it limits my spending, right? That if I go to the ATM and take out a bunch of money, then as it starts dwindling what's left in my wallet, maybe that makes me more frugal, 
who knows if that's true or not, but that's partly why I do it. And lastly, uh, I think there is this push to move us towards a cashless society, and it's not because they have our best interest at heart. And so what can one man do? I can keep paying cash when I go to the grocery store and Starbucks and such. That's what I can do. So I'm doing it all for you. So stop making fun of me on Facebook, people. Um, so in any event, um, the kid rings it up and I pay, you know, I give him the money. He types it in and then he's looking at how much the cash register says that it owes me as change. And for some reason, he doesn't believe it. And he gives me more change back than he should. And there were a whole line of people behind me. So I didn't want to hold them up, right? This, yeah, I don't like to hold people up in lines. This something goes back to my childhood. And so I just got out of the way, but I knew it was wrong. And so I waited for the line to evaporate, you know, for him to deal with all the other customers. And I go up to him and I say, you gave me too much change back. He's like, what? And he's looking, he goes, oh yeah, the banana. I forgot about the banana. Okay. So when I told this on Facebook, there was a lot of confusion. So let me be clear as to what happened. I ordered a coffee. I put the banana on the counter. The kid typed in both, right? So the computer knew I had bought a coffee and a banana I gave him a bill to pay for it, right? I wasn't doing like a quick change artist thing. I, I waited till he rang, rang it up. I gave him the money. He typed in what I gave him. The drawer opened. The computer told him what my change was. The computer was correct. But I think what happened is he was so used to people buying, you know, I got like a, a venti pike or something, you know, like it was a, it was a fairly standard order. And I think he had been working there so long and he was so used to people just getting that and paying with a $5 bill that he knew what the change was supposed to be for that type of an order. And, and normally people don't throw in a banana, presumably. And so I think that's what happened, that he knew, oh yeah, when someone buys a venti coffee or whatever I ordered and pays with a five, this is what the change is supposed to be. And so when the computer was telling him it was less than that, he just didn't believe it and thought the computer was wrong and gave me what he, quote, knew to be the correct amount, even though it was wrong. So I think that's what happened there. So what motivated my Facebook story, though, is I went, when I went up to him and said, hey, you, you gave me too much change back. He was like, oh, and he looked, he goes, oh, yeah, the banana. Okay, and instead of sitting there and figuring out how much did I owe him, he, he like, let me give him a dollar. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, thanks. And he didn't care. And so that was my joke on Facebook. I said something like, you know, who, who's the person here who's really got a problem? Me, the kid, or the owner of that Starbucks location, right? Ha ha, you, you get it like, so I'm saying I'm the one with the problem because I'm worrying about it more than he is, or does he have a problem because, you know, he's going through life with that kind of attitude? Or the owner who's got kids working the register that even when a customer comes up and says, you gave me too much money back, doesn't want to get it right, and the drawer's going to be all screwed up. All right, so that's, that's a story there. Now, more recently, what happened is I was going into a Walgreens and I, I think as you know, as I give you more context here, I think I understand partly how this happened. So I go out and I was kind of like, uh, just, I was in a real happy go lucky mood. It was late at night and I was just going to grab something and I was just kind of in a silly mood. And I, the clothes I can get is like, you know, like the the Big Lebowski when he's buying milk in the beginning. So I didn't have a bathrobe on. But, you know, he's just he's just kind of waltzing through the, uh, the grocery store. Was, that's kind of attitude I had. And so I go up and I'm walking up to the register. And again, this place, it's, there's, it's totally deserted because it's like 1130 at night or something. And, and this kid's sitting there at the register and he sees me coming. And so he's got a badge around his neck like an ID or something from Walgreens. And so he leans forward with the badge. So, you know, he leans his body forward to scan it in the, you know, the, the thing on the, on the countertop that you would scan product with, you know, scan the UPC codes. And so he does that. And I walk up and I say, oh, I thought you were buying your chest. And you can see he's really alarmed and looking at me like, what? And, and I said, you know how you, you lean forward and you scan that. I thought you were buying your chest. You know, I'm just, making, you know, he goes, oh, oh yeah, like that kind of thing. All right. So that's our, that's how we started off the, the interaction. And then I wish I had jotted these numbers down. Cause I, I was so sure when this happened, I was like, you know, I'm going to mention this in the podcast. And then I didn't write it down right away. So the numbers I'm going to give here, the spirit of what happened is correct, but these numbers might be a little off, but I think it was something like this. The bill was 1506, right? $15 and six cents. And so I open my wallet and I take out a 20 and then 
I may have handed it to him. I'm not sure. But then I go, hang on. And I reach in my pocket and I pull out six cents. And then I say to him, you said 1506? And he goes, yep. And I go, okay, hey. And I pull out a $5 bill and give it to him also. Because what's going on is I'm looking in my wallet and I have a bunch of fives already for some reason. And so I thought, okay, if it's 2006, if, if, if it's 1506 and I give him 2006, he's going to give me a five back. I don't want to have another five in here. Let me consolidate. Let me get rid of a five. So he gives me back a 10. That was my logic. Okay. So again, with this stuff, if you don't pay cash, this isn't an issue, but if you're going through life paying cash for most things, you start building up ones and fives in your wallet and you end up being like George Costanza. That's an old reference for young people. But the guy had a big fat wallet, right? So I didn't want that. And so just to, I know this is for older people who are like, yeah, Bob, this is obvious, but let me just make sure people get the idea. So a real simple one is let's say the bill were $16 even, right? And I open my wallet and I pull out a 20 and I see I have a bunch of ones in my wallet already. I don't want to just pay with a 20 because they're going to give me four singles back. And now I got four more in it. So if instead I take out a single and pay $21, they give me a $5 bill back, right? So instead of me gaining four, I get rid of one and then get one. Or You see, you see the idea. I, I, I tread water, as it were. So I have, I guess, what, four bills left, fewer in my wallet than otherwise would. All right. So that's that's the idea. All right. So with this one, the kid... Like I said, it was 15.06, I pull out a 20, then I go into my pocket and get six cents, so that's 20.06, I realize he's going to give me five back, I have a bunch of fives already in my wallet, and so I'm like, oh, instead of getting another five, why don't I get rid of a five and get a 10 back, right, I think that, also, I think I was was getting ready to travel, and I like to have fives and tens, also, like, in case, you know, I got to tip people or something, there was that going on, too, all right? So that's what I do. And I give it to the kid. Now, let me be crystal clear with all these anecdotes and everything. I never, ever, ever wait till the drawers open and then start trying to do stuff with the change. Right. So that's I realized my wife thought that's what I was doing. These poor kids. And she kind of yelled at me. No, that's that's not what I'm doing. It's not that I'm after the fact. So with all this stuff, all they ever have to do is just look at what the computer says. Right. Because I know this happens all with all these things. I'm, don't worry, folks. This is the last one of these change stories I'm telling you. But with, I mean, it happens all the time where when I overpay like this, the kid looks at me like like I'm an idiot. Like, no, don't you understand that twenty or that ten you just gave me covers it? Why are you giving me more? Like they <laughs> they're completely mystified. And you know, just like go ahead and type it in, and you'll see. But I'm um, so I'm saying with these things too. I'm not doing one of those quick change artists, you know, where people try to deliberately swindle people out of money by saying, oh, look, at you gave me a five here. Or, well, how about you give me two tens for my five? And da, 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 you know, that kind of stuff where you, you, you trip the kid up and you're deliberately trying to get money out. That's not what I'm doing in any of these situations. All these cashiers ever have to do is just type in what I gave them and let the computer tell them what the change is and give it to me. That would solve all the problems. The problem arises when the kids don't trust the computer. So in this one, you know, I give it to them. He types it in, the machine says that my change is $10. And instead, the kid goes, okay, and I owe you 15 And I was like, what? And and he gives me $15 back. And then, you know, and I, and I didn't say anything because at first I just wanted to make sure I heard him correctly. And he goes ahead and closes the drawer and gives me the 15 back. So I said that, you know, at this point, once the transaction was over, I said, you gave me too much. He said, what? And I, you know, gave him five back. And so... It just, for whatever reason, I don't know if this is going to ring true with some of you folks, but it it really just struck me like, I should not be going around to businesses and getting extra money back from people when I'm not even trying to rip them off. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, this was alarming to me that people were giving me extra money when I'm not even trying to do that. Now, the, in the the second case here, let me be clear, the kid was not bored. The kid, it wasn't that he just didn't care. Whereas with the Starbucks one, yeah, partly it was the kid just didn't care one way or the other. It didn't, he wasn't alarmed that his drawer was going to be off. He didn't care. But this one, what was going on, I could just tell from the kid's body language, he was trying to show me he was smart. He like, he, you know, he wanted to show, oh yeah, I get what you're doing. I owe you money back, don't I? Huh? And and he panicked and and did the math wrong. So, so I I get that, but I, I just, 
it really alarmed me knowing what sharks are out there and that there was this, you know, you would want to say generation coming up there. They're just, anyway, (laughs) again, back in my day with a kid. Notice I went through this whole thing and I didn't use the term millennial. There's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, when I saw that become in vogue, when older people would complain about millennials, I just, to me, that's like, I don't know. It, it, it's it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Kind of like you see <laughs> films about Vietnam and they call people gooks or something like it is it, the way people are using that term, like is a derogatory one just to label a whole group of people. It's eh, rubbed me the wrong way. Also, I just never know how to spell the thing, right? When there's more double consonants going on than seems right to me, I shy away. And last thing too, at this point, the word millennial, if you look up the actual definition, it's they're older than you think, right? So it's, it's actually not, people are using the term as if it means young people who are morons compared to me. And that's not really what it, what it means at this point. Millennials are probably older than you think. So for all those reasons. So that's, that's the story there. Uh, all I can say is the future is not bright. We, we've, uh, we've got people coming up who, who don't really know how to think. And it's, it's concerning to me. What can you do? Since I'm telling retail stories, let me just mention this one. I'm curious about what your guys' thoughts are. What happens is sometimes I'll go into a restaurant and the server, or sometimes this happens, uh, there's a, a five guys that my son and I go to, and it's happened at least twice where this one guy working the register, he will give us free milkshakes, right? Like we'll order one and then my son will want another one or, or I'll want it. Like, I was, ooh, that tastes good. Let me get one. And we'll go and he'll, he'll just give us free milkshake. He's done it at least twice where he hasn't charged us for a milkshake. And, and, then when, and when I found that my natural instinct in a situation like that is I will tip more than I otherwise would have, right? Cause I got a big chip jar and I, that happened once to me at a Denny's where the lady clearly undercharged, like she, like I ordered some stuff and she just didn't put it on the, the ticket, you know, when, when she gave me the bill, like there was things I ordered and it wasn't like I added them as an afterthought. She just, you know, like it, I ordered stuff in the beginning and she just didn't put it on there. And so uh, the bill I got was for less than, and I just, and I, for whatever reason, I got the sense that she was doing that deliberately. And so again, in that case, I gave her a bigger tip than I otherwise would have to show like, Oh yeah, I, I get what you're, you know, oh, that, that's, you're being real nice. You're doing me a, you're doing me a solid. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll do that. That's, that's kind of where I was coming from. Same thing with that guy. Like, oh, what a nice guy. He's, he's not uh, charging us for that shake. Well, here, let me, there's a little something for you. Right. That kind of thing. You scratch my back. And then at the casino once, this dealer, she, how did it work? Either I lost and she made it a push or it was a push and she paid me. I think that's what it was. I think I pushed and she paid me anyway. And for whatever reason, I felt like she did that on purpose. Like she felt bad for me or something. I, I don't know. Maybe I was losing. I can't remember. the. But I didn't think it was a mistake on her part. I thought she did it on purpose. And so the next hand, I tipped her because of it. So in all these situations, I felt in the moment like I was doing the right thing, like to show, oh, yeah, like partly I want to let them know, oh, I know what's up. I realize, you know, th- that you're, you're giving me a break here. But then I thought, well, wait a minute, am I like somehow helping them steal from their employer, right? Like if you think about it, someone who's working at the register, they can't just steal money out of the register. That That's kind of easy to get caught because it's, you know, the drawer would be short. But if instead they move product and don't type it in, and then the customer puts more money in the tip jar, well, that's effectively a way that the employees can steal from the company. And it's harder to detect than if they literally just, like I say, you know, grab money out of the register. So am I facilitating that? Not sure. I'll have to think about that. The next topic I'd like to discuss with you guys is this recent episode where for about two hours, I was totally backwards in my understanding of what the Fed was doing with these repo operations. So it's a bit embarrassing for me to admit this, but I thought, no, no, I'm going to admit it. And uh, with the hopes of letting other people realize that, you know, if they've made mistakes like this too, it's okay. We all make mistakes. But also, what did you learn, right, to just show exactly what happened? Because I think it's pretty interesting. So let me first explain what my mistake was, and then I want to show you how I got into that situation. So this is sort of like, you know, when the GAO 
does an audit of government finances and says, well, we've uncovered this absurdity. What happened? And then nothing ever happens. Well, hopefully the difference here is I will avoid a similar mistake. But again, let me just walk through because it's kind of interesting how I managed to think this. So specifically what's been going on in mid-September, the repo markets flared up on bobmurphyshow.com slash 68. I had Jeff Snyder come on if you haven't heard that one where we talk about it, if you want to see more about you know the actual uh, events and what the Fed did. But for our purposes here, all you need to know is there were liquidity problems. And so in the market for short-term loans where financial institutions put up things like treasuries as collateral in order to get either overnight or in some cases 14-day loans, again, with their collateral put up, uh, the the relevant interest rate, instead of being around between 1% and 2%, it shot up to over 10%. And so the Fed had to intervene because it didn't want the, the rate being that high. And so the specific vehicle were these things called repurchase agreements or repos for short. And so and, and with in Snyder's interview, we got into he's saying that the way these things have evolved, technically, the legal treatment is different from how it was historically. But for our purposes, the essence of it is why do they call it a repurchase agreement? Why don't they just call it a loan with collateral? So what you're doing is let's so let's say you're the institution that needs cash and you have good collateral like treasuries, right? But you can't use you can't spend a treasury. You need cash. So what you do is. You go to somebody who has cash and you say, hey, look at, why don't you buy my treasury from me in exchange for some money? And then I'm agreeing contractually that I'm going to repurchase it from you, whatever, tomorrow at a certain price. And so if I'm going to repurchase it from you for more than you're buying it from me, then you're going to earn interest on this one day transaction, right? So that's the idea. So instead of just saying, here's my collateral you give me a loan and I'll pay you back with a certain amount of interest. And if I default, then you get to seize my collateral. Instead of doing it like that with a repurchase agreement, it's technically I'm selling you my treasury for some money, but I'm agreeing I'm going to buy it right back from you. I'm going to repurchase it from you, whatever, tomorrow at a slightly higher price. And so it's in essence, it's the same thing, but that's just the way these transactions were couched. Okay. So that's the idea. So because the implicit interest rate in these repo transactions in mid-September of 2019 were getting unacceptably high, the Fed came in and engaged in what the press was calling repo operations of its own. And this you know, was, was described as injecting liquidity in the markets and it pushed down the interest rate and it soothed things and you know, so it got through the crisis. Okay, so I was getting ready, you know, I was boning up on this stuff to get ready to discuss it, you know, especially with um, my partner, Carlos Lara, you know, we talk about financial issues a lot. And so I'm reading up on this stuff just to really, you know, get my P's and Q's in order. And there was a period, like I said, it lasted about two hours where I had convinced myself that what the Fed had actually been doing was lending its own treasuries into the market in exchange for other institutions giving the Fed dollars, right? And that makes no sense if you think about it, right? If the issue is there are entities who have good collateral or treasuries, but they can't find someone who's willing to lend them cash for it, you know, for a very short term without getting paid like an interest rate over 10%, with all these things, it's annualized, the, the, the way they're quoting interest rate, then, you know, so I'm sitting there thinking, well, how, what you'd think the Fed would have been doing was coming in with dollars that the Fed could create electronically, obviously, and then letting private sector institutions lend the Fed their treasuries in exchange for the Fed giving them dollars. And then that would help ease the liquidity crunch, right? There's more dollars coming in in exchange for treasuries. So that would push down the price that people with treasuries had to pay in order to borrow cash against their treasuries. That's what you'd think, right? So to avoid confusion, that is what the Fed was doing, right? So the common sense makes sense. <laughs> it's true. But again, I somehow for about two hours was walking around thinking it was the other way around and that most commentary was wrong 
because just about everybody was assuming that's what the Fed was doing. So the point of me going through this little anecdote here is that after that happened, like I, I did again, like a what did we learn? Kind of like, how the heck did that happen? And and I and I reconstructed how did I end up in that erroneous position? And so here's what happened. So it's not just because oh, I'm a total bumbling fool. It's understandable what happened. So I want to explain it. So the big thing was the way the Federal Reserve describes its operations, it's actually the opposite of what you would think if a private sector institution were doing it. Or at the very least, if you just go and read like an Investopedia or something, what's the definition of a repo transaction? And then you go and look at what the Fed's saying it's doing, you would you would end up thinking it was the opposite. Okay, so just think about it. In a particular repo transaction, one side of the transaction is saying, I'm going to buy the asset back from you, whereas the other one is taking hold of the asset and then saying, okay, you're going to buy it back from me tomorrow or whatever, right? So there's a mirror image involved for any one of these transactions. And so it's a little confusing. And by the way, there's also what's called reverse repos, which of course is the mirror image of a repo. And so the other bit of information is that the Fed has been doing both in large on a large scale. Okay, so I knew that from a few years ago, the Fed was engaging in a lot of reverse repo operations for various reasons. Okay, so the Fed does both. So it's not, you know, it would be one thing if the Fed just did one type of it and then I somehow got mixed up, but the Fed does both. So I knew that as a you know, piece of background information that the Fed engages in both repos and reverse repos. And so, and I, you know, and that's kind of confusing. And so what I did when I first was went to get my ducks in a row on this, so to give more information, I don't like to just read secondhand accounts of what the Fed's doing. Like, I don't want to just go read the Wall Street Journal telling me what the Fed's been doing. I like to go to the actual source. I like to go to the Fed's minutes and whatever, and the Fed's official press releases and that kind of stuff starting more from the ground up because I don't want to just have other people's interpretations color the analysis. I like to start with as best as I, as I can with those sort of raw information. But in this case, it, it threw me. So that's what I'm, I'm showing you what happened. So again, I didn't assume anything. I went and I wanted to be able to reconstruct because I wanted to be able to teach it, right? So I, li I like to just start from first principles. So I went and just refresh my memory by going to invest the and stuff like, what is a repo transaction? Da, 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 and I went through all that stuff. And then, like I say, when you go and look, if you looked at the standard definition of what a repo is and what does it mean when a firm engages in a repo, or you might say they issues a repurchase agreement, and then you look at the Fed announcing that it's engaging in repo operations, it looked like, or you would think that, yeah, that means the Fed is giving up its treasuries, lending them out to people in exchange for them giving it cash. Okay, so right away, that struck me as odd. Like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. And so you might, you know, if, if I had just then gone to the races and said, yep, everyone else is wrong who's commenting on this, the Fed's actually doing the opposite of what people are saying, that would have been goofy, right? Because I knew enough to know, well, maybe either I'm just mixed up or maybe for some reason the, the convention is the Fed talks about it a different way. Just like... um with certain currencies when they announce like what's the exchange rate between the dollar and such and such. And they just give a number sometimes like if it's, this is how many dollars you got to give to get the other currency, or this is how many units of the other currency you got to give to give a dollar. Like sometimes I've noticed people quote it inconsistently, I guess just for convenience. All right. And, and anybody who worked in those markets would know what the person meant. But if you were an outsider coming in, you might for a minute be, be backwards. Okay, so likewise here, I knew enough to say, okay, maybe just the convention, it's the opposite of what you'd think if you just tried to apply the definition for first principles. So then I was looking around at the news stories, and one of the first ones I saw that looked like it was a pretty good explainer, you know, that didn't just give the report, but kind of went through in more detail as to what exactly was happening, that reporter was just flat out wrong, right? So I'm sitting here reading it, and the reporter said, the Federal Reserve announced on whatever it was, September 17th, that it would begin uh, with repo operations. What happens in a repo operation is that the Federal Reserve uh, temporarily sells some of its treasuries to the, to the private sector in exchange for cash. 
by injecting more bonds into the market, the Fed eased blah, 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 something like that. Okay. So again, I early on in my process of just looking around and trying to see different news accounts or, or explainer pieces as to what was going on, someone said the exact wrong thing. Okay. So again, I'm, I'm trying to justify to you guys and explain how did I end up for two hours thinking something that was backwards. And so that was a crucial, obviously, link in the, in the process is that I happened to stumble upon an article where the author was just totally wrong. Okay. So, and this wasn't like, you know, Jim's blog from some guy in Timbuktu. I mean, this, this was a, what looked to be a fairly mainstream financial news outlet. Okay. It wasn't CNBC and it wasn't the wall street journal, but it was, again, it, it looked like a, a normal thing and it was high up in the Google rankings. Like that's how I found it. Okay. It wasn't that I spent six hours going onto the eighth page of Google results. This was a top hit that I had found just on my own. I was just trying to get up to speed. Right. So it wasn't even like I went looking for someone to confirm the opposite of what the conventional people were saying. This was something that when I just went to look and say fed repo operations, this was one of the top hits. And so this reporter was just backwards in fairness to the reporter it's possible what happened is he made the same mistake I did. He might have gone to the definitions of what's a repo operation and just blindly applied that to what the Fed said it was doing and then concluded, well, that must mean what the Fed is doing is, but you know, okay. So at this point now, I'm excited, right? Because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be able to contribute to this because everybody's got it backwards. This is great. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. How could how does this make sense, right? Like how could the Fed be helping? Why, you know, if the problem is people have treasuries and they want to get cash, how is the Fed helping by injecting more treasuries and sucking out cash, right? So that was a puzzle. And then I came up with an answer, right? Because I had read other people talking about this issue of the repo markets breaking down and and because uh, there was a different puzzle was that how could the repo market all of a sudden be drying up? How could there be a liquidity crunch when we still have a trillion dollars or whatever it is in excess reserves sloshing around, right? So right now, banks, commercial banks, they have in the aggregate, when you look and say, okay, what's your total deposits? What are your total reserves? And how much do you need to satisfy your legal reserve requirements? They have like over a trillion dollars still in what's called excess reserves. And so it seems odd, just prima facie, how can there be a liquidity crunch when the banks have all this extra money sloshing around? And so I had read this other guy who was explaining, well, there's not just the reserve requirements. There's also uh, capital requirements from things like, you know, the U.S. Dodd-Frank or more generally the Basel Accords and blah, blah, blah. And you got to have all this high quality collateral and all this stuff. And so he was making the argument that there are institutions that they maybe can't give up their treasuries or something like that, right? They, they have to hold these things to satisfy these other requirements, all right? So I was coming up with this sort of convoluted story by which, oh, wait a minute, because of the interaction of these two things, maybe somehow by the Fed injecting more treasuries into the market, that's allowing things to get redistributed so that, you know, these institutions that are sitting on cash you know, they need the cash to satisfy something else, but the, but the treasuries also satisfy that constraint. So if they had more treasuries, that would allow, I'm going through all this stuff and I thought I was coming up with some convolute, right? So at this point, I'm excited because, oh, I have something to contribute to the conversation. Everyone's getting this wrong and I can explain why, right? So here I'm, I'm being vague, but I did have a, this long thing to show, oh, a mechanism by which, in principle, I could see how the Fed injecting treasuries would help. Again, it, it wasn't a straightforward thing. You had to have these other conditions in place because straightforwardly, it made no sense. And and then, you, and that wasn't the, all I did. Still, I was like, you know, still something, let me just make sure. And so I did one last, what I thought, final check. And I went, because I, I knew, okay, just the fact that this, this website is saying this, maybe they're wrong. Because I'm realizing this is weird why is that, you know, that everyone else is getting this thing backwards. And so I went and I Googled around some more and I found the Wall Street Journal discussion of what the Fed was doing. And because at this point, I'm excited thinking everybody else is wrong. I'm onto something here. I get to contribute. And not only can I point out everyone's wrong, but I can explain the theoretical mechanism. I go into it 
look with that mindset and I read this Wall Street Journal coverage of the Fed's operations and I walked away thinking, boom, even the Wall Street Journal is saying what the, what the Fed is doing is putting up treasuries in exchange for money and that that's what these, these repo operations are. And so that's when I became convinced. And I was like, wow, everybody's wrong, right? Because I've seen now one website explain it matter-of-factly. I've got the basic definition of what a repo operation is. I know the Fed does both, so that, you know, that can't be an issue. And I've got now someone at the Wall Street Journal commenting on the Fed's activities that week, the, you know, that, that mid-September week, saying, I thought, exactly what the other website was saying. And so I, I'm like, oh my gosh, everybody who's commenting on Twitter is just assuming that the way the Fed's going to ease the liquidity crunch is by injecting cash and pulling treasuries out. But nope, they've got it wrong. The Fed's been doing the opposite, right? So that's what I thought. Now, I was wrong. And so what I did... Fortunately, I still had one last little check before I went to the races with this. And I went on Twitter and I said something like, help me out here, folks. If the problem is there's a, uh, a shortage where people have treasuries and they want to borrow money and the rates are going up, if the Fed comes in and lends its own treasuries out into the market in exchange for loans of money, why wouldn't that be exacerbating the situation? And I said, I think I know why, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Okay, so that was, so at this point, like I was fully convinced it was the other way, but I wasn't sure what the mechanism was, so I wanted to add. And so immediately when I posted that, people are piling on going, no, Bob, you got it backwards. The, the Fed is letting people lend the Fed treasuries and, and mortgage-backed securities too. And the Fed is giving them dollars so that, that you, you're backwards. And, you know, I had a bunch of people piling out and then that kind of snapped me out of it. I was like, wait a second. And so I went through and and I, I checked with other sources. I went to, I dug deeper at the Federal Reserve's website where it explains in more detail, what does it mean by a repo operation? What does it mean by a reverse repo? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And and so I, you know, that that's what broke the spell, right? So like I said, it was 90 minutes, two hours, something like that on a weekend where I had somehow dug myself into a hole where I was convinced everybody was backwards on what the Fed was doing. Or well, not everybody, because I thought I had <laughs> people on financial websites saying the other way around what I thought at that moment was the correct thing. Okay, so what was it with the, so like I said, the the, the definitional thing there, it's just, it, it's the opposite. And, and people were explaining to me on Twitter, like that know this stuff. They were saying, well, yeah, because the Fed, what it's doing is it's saying it's like a repo from the point of view of the customer. All right. So that's, you know, that kind of, so that's how you fix that one. Okay. And then, like I said, the one website I found that really made me think I was onto something, that guy, there, there's no ambiguity. He, he was flat out saying what the Fed has been doing this week is giving its treasuries in exchange for money. So that guy was just backwards himself. And, and you know, and that was part of a story that ran. So he's just wrong. And I, again, I think I know why, because he got mixed up with the definitions. And then the Wall Street Journal one, I went back to see, right? Because I was like, wait a minute. So did the Wall Street Journal get this wrong also? Because that was the thing that really clinched it for me. I was like, well, if the Wall Street Journal is reporting this, this has got to be what's going on. So I went back to look at the, the particular article that made me, you know, that, that, that cinched it for me or clinched it, I guess. And what it was is the sentence that I read was ambiguous, right? So I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like this. It was like, um, the Fed has been engaging in repo operations with private institution or, you know, with a select institutions from the private sector, comma, in which treasuries are exchanged for uh, money in a short-term transaction or something like that. Okay. So you see how, if now I'm thinking I have a hunch, holy cow, is every, you know, are most people on Twitter and whatever getting this wrong? Is the Fed actually giving up its treasuries in exchange for money? And then, like I said, the sentence was something like, the Federal Reserve this week began large-scale operations, large-scale repo operations with select private sector dealers, comma, in which treasuries are exchanged for money, something like that. Okay, so that sounded like the Fed was giving its treasuries up in exchange, but really what the writer meant was the Fed's engaging his operations with the private sector counterparts, and they're the ones giving up treasuries for. But you see, the, the sentence was written ambiguously. And in fact, if you didn't know, grammatically speaking, 
the best guess would have been, you know, what my interpretation was, right? So it really was a misleading sentence, but it wasn't false. It was just ambiguous, okay? But but given my mindset, I, you know, had the false confirmation there. So that's what happened, and I just thought it was interesting, and I'm sharing that with you. Let me say for the economists who are listening to this, I realized that this is something that economists do a lot. It's it's a vice of the trade where the, the mindset is something like, hey, I don't know whether the real world is like this, but if it is, then I can explain why, right? So Because that's kind of what I was doing here is I wasn't sure what the Fed was doing, but my point was I was excited because I thought, okay, if the Fed really is doing the opposite of this particular thing of whatever things, then I think I can explain why. I can come up with a mechanism to explain why is that actually a good idea. And I, and economists do this all the time where you'll see them, you know, pontificating on some subject and they'll say, you know, I don't know whether this is right or not, right? We we got, that's an empirical question, but if it turns out it is, you know, here's how you would explain that, you know, here are the economic principles involved. And, you know, if you you just stop and think that through, that's nutty, right? Because how, how do you, if you don't even, in other words, the reason you don't know whether it's correct or not is because the particular mechanism you're talking about like it's a force pushing in one direction, there are other things that might be offsetting it. So that's why the economist in that situation is being agnostic and saying, now, I don't know if in reality this is how things play out, but if they do, here's the mechanism that must be involved. And so really all you're saying is I came up with this one theoretical mechanism that could be pushing in one direction, but for all I know, it's getting swamped by other factors. But if it's, you know, if it manages to survive, or like if this signal breaks through the noise, this is what that signal's coming from. That's kind of what they're saying. And so I, again, I, I know economists, some of them are my best friends, but if you think that through, that's actually pretty dangerous, right? That you're admitting you don't know all the different factors in play or their relative strengths. You're really just focusing on one particular thing. And so to say, oh, if, if we observe this thing in, in, in the empirical evidence, then this is the thing that's causing it. No, you, you don't know that. Even if your mechanism is correct, still, for all you know, there's six other mechanisms that are more powerfully pushing in that direction. And those are the things that are responsible for the observed effect. All right. So you still don't know that it's your thing driving it. All right. And again, it's economists do that a lot. And I think what happens is they come up with some clever counterintuitive result where oh, wait a minute, you know, in this kind of a setting, if we make these assumptions, then this thing would cause this outcome. And they're so excited because, again, they want to contribute. It's some mechanism nobody's thought of before that that that's really the important thing. They want to go and explain that to people. And then they end up thinking their little toy model in their head is really what's going on. And it makes it hard for them to look objectively at the evidence to see is that really what's going on because they're so excited about their little toy model and the mechanism at play. And again, because if, the, if it's right, then they've just made a contribution to our understanding of that phenomenon. All right, so I, I, there's countless examples of comments doing it. I'm not even going to bother going through it, but for whatever reason, when I was going through my little uh, post-game show, like, what the heck happened here, kids? How did, how did I walk around for two hours thinking the wrong thing? And then I reconstructed what my reasoning was and what, what mistakes I made. Again, what was, I, I was being honest with myself, what was pushing it near the end was I wanted everybody else to be wrong because then that meant I could contribute and I could solve the puzzle. And, and so I'm just warning other economists in particular, you know, try to watch out. Are you doing that in your own work where you've come up with some theoretical mechanism and then you really want that to be the thing driving the result. And you kind of poo-poo other people's explanations and ignore evidence to the contrary and just go out looking for stuff that backs up what you say in classic confirmation bias. Okay, what about AOC and this whole eat babies thing? Let's play the clip. So this was at a town hall or something that AOC was speaking at. And this lady gets the mic. And I'm sure some of you heard this, but here's what she said. I'm going to be here for much long because of the climate 
crisis. We only have a few months left. I love that you support the Green Deal, but it's not getting, you know, getting rid of fossil fuel is not going to solve the problem fast enough. A Swedish professor saying, you know, we can eat dead people, but that's not fast enough. So I think your next uh, campaign slogan has to be this. We got to start eating babies. We don't have enough time. There's too much CO2. All of you, you're, you're, you know, you're a pollutant. Too much CO2. We have to start now. Please, you are so great. I'm so happy that you really support a nuclear deal, but it's not enough. You know, even if we would bomb Russia, we still have too many people, too much pollution. So we have to get rid of the babies. That's a big problem. Just stopping having babies is not enough. We need to eat the babies. And this is very serious. Please give a response. No, thank you. Thank you. We'll go ahead. Um, Okay. No, we'll we'll go ahead. It's no, no, no. Yeah, no. Thank you. So I think. um, Yeah, no. So one of the things that's very important to us is that we need to treat the climate crisis with the urgency that it does present. Um, luckily, we have more than a few months. We do need to hit net zero in several years. Um, but I think we all need to, to, to understand that there are a lot of solutions that we have. Um, and that we can pursue, and that if we act in a positive way, there's space for hope. There's, we are never beyond hope. Okay. Okay. So with this one, fortunately, I was correct on this, right? So I just admitted for the past 20 minutes in that anecdote how I screwed up. But here my instincts were sound. I knew right away, the moment I heard this thing, that this lady was trolling AOC. And it, it amazed me, the reaction on Twitter, how many leftists thought the lady was serious and just had mental issues. Like that was AOC's conclusion. But beyond that, how many people on the right were like, ha ha, look at how nutty these people are. They want to eat babies. Not realizing that this was a troll. And, you know, they could have congratulated her. Like, yeah, that was great. You really trolled AOC. Good job. I'm not saying they should have said, what are you doing? That's dumb. But my point being, I was amazed by how many people both on the left and the right thought this lady was serious. When to me, it was crystal clear the first time I heard it that she was trolling. And so the specific things that to me that gave it away were when she said to AOC, you should make this your campaign slogan. Like that, I just, for whatever reason, I don't don't think somebody who actually thought the world was going to end and we need to start eating babies, I don't think she would have you know, told AOC, you got to make this your campaign slogan. Like that seemed like an odd non sequitur. And then the thing that really clinched it for me was when she said the stuff about bombing Russia, right? Because that was just totally out of left field. That has nothing to do with the issue at hand. And so I thought clearly that was just mocking Democrats and their whole, uh, you know, delusions about Russian collusion and that kind of stuff and how everything's Russia, Russia, Russia all the time. To me, that was just an obvious tell that she was faking. Okay, so for whatever reason, uh, I'm patting myself on the back on that one that I knew instantly this lady was trolling and apparently a bunch of other people fell for it. So there you go. What's interesting, though, (laughs) as others have pointed out, it's not so much, you know, it was like, notice the AOC did not say eating babies was wrong. And that's true. But I like how her her reaction, the the way she dealt with it was to say, well, well, no, we we have more time than that. Right. (laughs) So this is kind of funny that it wasn't just a, no, eating babies is wrong and we wouldn't do that. It's it's her first way to deal with that line of thought was, oh, we we got more time. We can do other, we have other responses first. Let's, you know, eating babies is the last resort. Okay. And the last thing I wanted to contribute here on the uh, whole impeachment stuff, it's, again, it's, what, what bothers me is when people will use one type of argument against their opponent and then they don't see how that same argument would also boomerang back at them. So I've seen people, when it comes to um, the stuff about Joe Biden, and they'll say, uh, you know, I really can't believe how many people on the right apparently think that the vice president has the authority to call off a corruption investigation in the Ukraine. Give me a break, guys. Right. So they're trying to show this idea that Joe Biden somehow did something inappropriate by getting the Ukrainian prosecutor fired who was looking into, you know, his son's activities. 
and okay, that's fine. But these people were also gung ho about impeaching Trump. And so I said, okay, by the same token, the president of the United States does not have the authority to tell the Ukrainian government to go look into the activities of Joe Biden and his kid or to the, you know, the investigation of what happened with uh, the Russian conspiracy probe and all that stuff. Right. So again, just, just being consistent. So if you can understand the sense in which the U.S. president might be able to leverage somebody, well, by the same token, maybe the vice president could have as well. Another example of this is people are going, oh, well, yeah, Trump didn't literally say, at least in the memo that we saw of that phone call, hey, you do this for me and then I'll restore your military aid. So there wasn't an explicit quid pro quo, but come on, he was being like the godfather. He was saying basically hey, it'd be a shame if something were to happen to your military aid, wouldn't it? Right, so that's what he was doing. Okay, that's fine. You know, I got no problem with that. But then these same people, when the Republican or the pro-Trump Republicans flip it and say, oh, okay, but what about Biden? He did the same thing. You know, he admits it on the stage here with the CFR. Let me go ahead and play that clip just in case you folks aren't familiar with that. Um, I remember going over convincing our team, our others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to the press conference. Said, "No, nah. I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, "You're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here." And I think it was what six hours. I looked. I said, "I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money." Oh, son of a bitch! <laughs> got fired, and they put in place someone who was solid. Right. So there, Biden is clearly bragging about how he got that prosecutor, you know, to drop the case. And so, you know, people are, again, they're, they're talking about, oh, that's not, you know, he didn't even mention his son. What are you talking about? Joe Biden didn't mention his son. So we talk, well, again, the same type of principle. Okay. But you can't read between the lines or you don't think that even if the prosecutor wasn't at that moment investigating his son, that he might end up uncovering things involving Biden's kid. It's ridiculous. Also, let me mention that it's kind of rich to me. We're talking about the Godfather. And just to to, to clarify here, to, to be more accurate, strictly speaking, to my knowledge, Don Corleone never did what the, you know, what's being attributed to him here. Like he didn't go up to people and say, oh, it'd be a shame if something were to happen to your laundromat and so you better start paying us money, right? That, that's not how he operated. Like, in fact, he was pretty clear about, you know, with threatening people. So later he would be a bit euphemistic and say, I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Right. But he was pretty straightforward with the way he dealt with people when he was, you know, wanting them to do something for him, at least in in my memory. And what's ironic is one part where he is a bit vague and he just lets you fill in the gaps is when it comes to his son, right? The part when he, when he's meeting with those family and when they have the peace, when they're trying to end the war and Michael's gone over uh, to back to Italy or whatever to get away from you know the investigation after he shoots uh, the the police captain and Salozo and all that. And so, what does Don say? So something you know along the lines of, "Well, I'm a very suspicious man. And when my son Michael comes back, if something were to happen to him, if he gets shot in the head by a police officer, if uh, if his plane should crash, if he should hang himself in his jail cell, or if uh, a bolt of lightning should hit him." This I do not forgive, right? He said he says that kind of thing. So again, if anything, when it comes to someone leaning on somebody to get a concession versus protecting their son in a euphemistic way, but we all know what's really going on. If you want to use the Godfather as a reference, well, then clearly Joe Biden is the one that's most closely lining up with the way Don Corleone acted in the Godfather movies, not the way Trump apparently was shaking down the guy. All right, so. By the way, in case you guys are wondering, you're thinking I just literally went to YouTube and played a clip there of The Godfather, right? You did. It was just such a spot. Nope. That was actually me doing an impression, believe it or not. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Watch this. 
I'll, I'll do an economic version of it. You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. What have I ever done to you to deserve such disrespect? Why do I have to pay negative interest? My account balance is still positive. This is not justice. There you go. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this potpourri episode. Keep listening for perhaps more tightly structured episodes in the future, as well as interviews. See you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.